0: We find ourselves, as we continue this morning, back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, and we find ourselves in the midst of a very familiar story, the story of the flood, something we'll take the next couple of weeks to unravel and, uh, and look to. And as we begin our time this morning, I ask that you stand up in reverence for the Word of God, if you are able, and we'll be reading some of our passage this morning. Genesis chapter 6, we'll be covering verses 9 through 22, but as we begin, let us simply begin with the first few verses, beginning again in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. There we find these words. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. This is the word of God. Please be seated. The greatest stories ever told, all, generally speaking, share their ability to be understood by audiences across a variety of demographics, both young and old. They tell themes and messages that that we all can appreciate, but as we get older, we appreciate them with a bit more complexity. One of the greatest examples of this, I believe, is the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. One of these classic books that perhaps some of you have not read in here, but is actually, I believe, the second um, most popular book in history of the world outside of the Bible. It's one of these books that tells an incredible story about the journey of Christian and describes the journey that every Christian goes on on their way to heaven, or as it's described in the book Pilgrim's Progress, the celestial city. And if you've ever read this book... You know how, how simple at times the message of the book basically is. Any child can, can understand and appreciate the message that the author, Bunyan, was attempting to present. For as you follow Christian on his journey, you come in contact with characters with names like hopeful, despair, talkative. You see creatures like those that are described as the shining ones that represent angels, angelic messengers, those who protect us. As you consider each of these characters, even a child can, can understand what the author is getting at. For even a child can understand despair, at least in a variety of forms. A child can understand hope. A child can understand anger, as he's seen in other passages and other characters. And so even those who are young are able to follow the, the character along and say, okay, I, I think I understand what's happening here. What a precious story. What a beautiful story. But it's also one of these stories that as we read as adults, and can I encourage all of you to do so, we can find that same meaning, but both more complexity. The story only grows in its beauty. It only grows in its brilliance with our own life's experiences. For all, a child can understand the concept of despair. It really takes someone who's lived a little bit of life to, to feel that despair, doesn't it? And so when we read of that character in Pilgrim's Progress, we read it as more than just, oh, I think I know what that means. We read it and we say, oh, I know what that feels like. I've been there. When we read of a character like Talkative... We, we know that it doesn't simply mean talkative. We understand what that can mean in our own lives, and we understand those chatty people that can be so distracting to us at times. And so, again, we, we find a little bit more meaning. And as a result, as we come to the end of the story, and as we approach the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress, we see it more than just a, a picture of some end destination. We see it as representing the hope every single one of us has. And if we really appreciate what it's saying, we can read this child's story, but we can be moved even as adults to tears. We understand the beauty the Bunyan writes with. We understand that this story is not just some fable, it's the story of all of us. And thus, in that complexity, we see ourselves, we see our journey, and we are made all the more better for reading it. As we come to the story of the flood in Genesis 6, we find ourselves in a story Not not unlike that. Although unlike Pilgrim's Progress, the story of the flood, of course, is not fiction. It's historical. It happened. And it's a story that if you grew up in church, you have heard countless times. As such, when you go through the story, you find details that are pretty straightforward. Easy to understand regardless of your age. You know what Genesis 6 is talking about. For you can understand the idea of a flood. You understand the concept of God speaking, of God preserving. But as I hope we begin to see today, as we unfold these verses, as we explore this narrative, we find a story that is far more than just some Sunday school message. We find a story that is grand, that is inspiring, that that holds in it details of the complexities of God. It speaks of, of God in a way that defies our expectations. Ultimately, as we see the story of Noah, what I hope we understand is As we see the story of us, we see that that we too are caught in a similar narrative. Uh, That we too face a day of judgment as Noah faced, but we who are in Christ face it not in trepidation, but in confidence. Not because of who we are, but because of what God has made us and what we know God will cause us to become. And so as we read the story today, I pray that we might look beyond those simplistic messages, although I pray you also see those. And as we read this message, we might see ourselves in it, we might see our own calling as it stirs us to be obedient servants of God just as Noah was obedient as well. With that being said, let me go and open us up in a word of prayer and we will start looking at this familiar tale. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father in heaven, we thank you already for the gift that this morning has been. What a gift it is to get to come into this building week to week. To get to escape the pressures and expectations of the world around us and to hopefully just take a breath. To be reminded of who we are, to be reminded of the fact that as chaotic as the world is around us, God, that you are still faithful, that your plan is still known to us, God, and that in you we can find continual rest. I pray, Father, that as we read this story today, we might read it with fresh eyes as we've prayed so frequently in Genesis Might none of us presume that we understand already the story fully, but might we appreciate it in its complexities? Might we appreciate it in what it says about you, what it reminds us about us, that is what we're to be? And God, as we read the story of Noah, might we take seriously the fact that we too are caught up in a similar narrative today? Might we rejoice in the fact that you have given us the message, you have told us what to expect? But might we not forget that we too have been given a calling in light of that message, in light of the coming day of judgment. God, those who are here this morning who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray that they might be terrified by the flood. I pray that they see their own coming destruction in Genesis 6. And I pray they respond in faith, knowing that preservation can come by your hand and your hand alone. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might we be rightly awestruck, by your power, by your glory, by your majesty, but also by your grace, by your compassion. Might we be moved by the grace and compassion you show to Noah? Might we strive to be all the more obedient and diligent to follow you in our own days as we look ahead to our own day of judgment? God, remove all distractions from us at this time. God, cause us to be entirely focused upon you and cause your name to be glorified. Cause your son, Jesus Christ, be seen in all his beauty this morning in all of his majesty and wonder. Jesus, it is in your name we pray these things. Amen. As we look at our text today, we'll see that it can be broken down into three very simple, very basic scenes. We will see from the beginning how God sees his servant, that is God takes notice of his servant. We will see how God then prepares his servant Noah for the coming judgment and we'll then turn finally to the response of Noah and how he Responds to the message of God. As we begin, though, we begin with this very simple yet incredible note. The God takes notice, or God sees his servant Noah. Again, we read in verses 9 through 12. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. As our story opens up today, it opens up with a very important phrase, that phrase being, these are the records of. If you've been paying attention through our study of Genesis, you understand that this phrase has been used by the author, Moses to direct our attention to that unfolding narrative, to remind us that this story is set in a broader story. And so we saw earlier on in Genesis the record of the generations of the heavens and the earth that depicted and set our focus upon creation. We see shortly after that the generations of Adam, and so it directs our attention to Adam and caused the story to continue to move along. We saw a little bit of that in Genesis chapter 5. And as we come now to Genesis 6, we see Moses is taking us to a new focus, that focus being Noah and the story of the flood. And what we'll see over the course of these next few weeks is that this story, this chapter, really is the center point of Genesis 1 through 11. It is a a key story that defines so much of what Moses strives to lay out moving forward. As Moses begins this chapter of the story, he begins by reminding us the state of affairs on the earth When Noah was born, when Noah was raised. That state of affairs, of course, as we mentioned last week, is incredibly dark, incredibly gloomy. If you were with us last week, you already remember the words from Genesis 6, 1 through 8, where we see that that God understands the wickedness of man being great. So great that we read in verse 5 that every intent of the thoughts of the heart of man was evil continually. That same gloomy picture of humanity Is extended here in verses 9 through 12, where we see, specifically in 11 through 12, that the entire earth is corrupt, that it seems that sin itself had stained the land. And that again, as a result of this sinfulness, that God is able to describe all of humanity as being utterly violent. Now, this language is not mean. The mankind was literally lashing out violently against other people. We see, rather, throughout Scripture, this language of violence is actually used in a bit broader of a manner than you might initially expect. We live in a culture in which we might be annoyed to hear people say things like, words are violence. That's a common thing. But in the Old Testament world, well, quite frankly, it's the language a lot of Old Testament authors use. That all sin is violence. For if you read through the book of Jonah, for instance, you see the book of, or the city of Nineveh is described as a violent city. Not because they're literally at war with people, but because of the intolerance they're showing to one another because of the way they're abusing the poor in their society. In a similar way, if you read Micah 6.12, you read of the violence of rich men. Again, not speaking to literal physical violence, but speaking to the violence of, of mistreating other people. Of course, this word does include other violence. We read of that violence earlier when we read about Lamech and how he bragged about killing others. But broadly speaking, what we understand in Scripture, again, is that, that all sin is violence for it's an attempt to destroy God's good order and it's an attempt to dismantle a person made in his image. It's an attempt to abuse those tools that God has given us and use them not to bring glory to the creator but bring glory to us. And incredibly, as we look back in the days of Noah, we understand that it is that violence that characterizes all of humanity. And God, being the creator of all of this, God being good, God being just, God being holy, of course, takes notice of that. We expect that of God. One would expect that the creator would see if his creation has gone to pot. What we perhaps might not necessarily expect, however, is the other thing that God notices. For we're also told in, in verses 9 through 13, really, that in the midst of all this darkness, God also takes notice of Noah. We saw that earlier last week in verse 8 when we read Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And again, we see that here in our passage today. And what Moses is attempting to show us is that in the midst of this darkness, there's shone shown one light. One beautiful image of what it meant to live for God. What it meant to bring glory to the creator as we are intended to do. And that one shining light came in the person of Noah. Now Noah here is described using kind of three phrases, three words. We see that at the beginning of our passage. He's depicted as righteous, as blameless, and as walking with God. God. Now, those first two words, righteous and blameless, are a great summary statement of the overall character of Noah. It speaks of him as being a man of integrity. Through and through, you knew what to expect from Noah. He was a righteous man. He strived to live for Yahweh. To the original audience, the Hebrew people, this depiction would have no doubt carried with it a special amount of weight for these same words are used by God when when giving the expectations of the Israelites for how they're to live in the promised land. You can find many examples of that, but one brief one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, as as God addresses people and speaks to how they are to live in the promised land, we read these words, verses 13 through 14. It says, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. This is one brief snapshot of how this language would be used, but I think it's appropriate as it shows us this expectation of all the Israelites. And so you can imagine this original audience hearing this depiction of Noah and, and thinking, or at least perhaps saying out loud, okay, this, this is how we're supposed to be. Noah is depicted in the same way that we are commanded to live amongst the nations. We are to be different just like Noah was different. In this depiction, then, we see that connection to the Hebrew people. But as, as Moses describes Noah, he also connects him to an older story, doesn't he? For he doesn't just describe him as blameless. He gives that third statement in which we read that Noah walked with God. This is somewhat odd language, the type of language we would not use regularly today. But it's language that, again, would have caused flags to pop up in the minds of the readers. When we read in Genesis 6 that someone walked with God, who's going to immediately come to mind? Well, at least two people in Genesis. One, briefly, Enoch. A few weeks ago, Pastor Andy preached through Genesis 5. And you read back in Genesis 5, verse 21 through 23, or 24, rather, about Enoch. And at the end of Enoch's life, we read in verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God, took him. Enoch, like Noah, walked with God, and he was taken from the earth so he could be physically with God. That's the first person that perhaps comes to mind, but more importantly, more central to the story of Genesis, of course, is Adam. Adam walked with God. Eve walked with God. Adam, being the representative of all of humanity, was the first one to walk properly with God. Because he sinned, that ability to walk with God was taken away from him. He was kicked out of the garden. And as we've hit on time and time again, the, the rest of the story of Genesis and all scripture is that story of how do we get back to that place that Adam was in? How can we walk with God? And so it is by no means insignificant to read that Noah himself was the latest representation of this. That Noah, as a righteous servant, was the latest individual who appeared to be living up to the reputation that he was supposed to have who appeared to stand out in the way that all of humanity is supposed to stand out if they're living for God, the creator. From the outset then, there's a great deal that we can learn from the message of Noah or rather the example of Noah. For it is quite convicting to read of his character, isn't it? Maybe that's just me. We live in a world in which it's easy to to think as if I and I alone am, am serving God. We can think along these terms. We can be so selfish and self centered that we alone are, are striving to serve God. We alone understand the truth. We can become so disgusted by the world around us that we can begin to believe that we are somehow the, the one person who gets it. We understand that's not true, right? And look around you this morning. There's a good number of people here that are, for the most part, I think, trying to live for God. It's a blessing to understand that. It's a blessing to know we're not alone. But as we look at Noah, we see that he was alone. Yet, Noah didn't excuse that. Noah didn't use that as an excuse for his own sin, for his own violence, rather. He, he maintained this purity. And in so doing, he, he shone like a star. He fulfilled that same language that the Apostle Paul ultimately uses. In Philippians 2.15, when speaking to the, the believers in Philippi, describes them as shining like stars in a dark and crooked generation. The question, of course, we must ask as we consider the language of Paul and the example of Noah. As brothers and sisters, do we shine like that? We can all acknowledge that we live in a dark world. That's not hard. But how shiny are we in that dark world? How much do you stick out? How much do I stick out versus how much do we just blend into our society? When the world is greedy, are we selfless? When the world is cruel, are we gentle? When the world is doing everything it can to take glory away from God, are we striving to be those humble servants that are constantly putting the focus back to Jesus, back to our Creator? That's our calling. And if we do that like Noah, we can take note and take comfort in the fact that that we will shine. But even more than that, when we do that, we can take note of the fact that God sees us. That even if we feel like we are all alone, even if we are doing just the basic bare minimum, things that would by no means impress the world or even impress some of our Christian friends, that even that basic obedience is seen by God. That the infinite creator of the universe sees you, he sees you striving, he sees you working towards him And he takes note of that. That's a beautiful picture. And it's a reminder, as brief as it is, even in Genesis 1-6, through of the fact that God, the Creator, is never pictured as this distant, disconnected Creator. He is relational. He loves His people. What a needed reminder that is for every single one of us. For how so often our own service can feel like it is going unnoticed, that we are unappreciated. But brothers and sisters in Christ, that's never the case when we're serving God. Priest sees it all. And he's honored and he's pleased by this. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful window into the heart of God as we see him take note of Noah. And yet as the story continues to to unfold, we see that, that the grace of God is only amplified. For as the story of the flood begins, we see that that God does not simply see his servant. God doesn't simply see us as we serve him. But in verses 13 through 21, that same infinite creator, sovereign creator, takes the time to prepare this servant. He brings this one individual behind the curtain, and he shares with him exactly what's about to happen and exactly how he ought to respond. We see this again in verses 13 through 21. As we begin, though, just pick it up, as we begin in verse 13. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. We'll stop there for a moment. We'll see the content of the communication here in a second, the messages that God gives Noah. But just as we begin this verse i want to take a step back so that we can appreciate not just the content of god's communication but the gift that is god's communication for god is doing something here that he doesn't have to do at all god is taking a finite sinful man for no is not sinless by any means and he again is is bringing him in to this closer conversation. God is acting not in a way that a, a king acts before a servant, but God is acting in a manner that's more akin to how you would treat a friend. A friend that you want to warn, a friend you want to prepare, a friend you want to bring in close. And as shocking as that might be here in Genesis 6, it's the type of imagery that the Hebrew people would have been familiar with. For we see God doing this type of shockingly intimate activity time and time again with his chosen servants. You see this famously in the example of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, something that's depicted later on in Genesis, over in Genesis chapter 18. In, in this passage... You see God treating Abraham, his own chosen servant, in a very similar way. For in Genesis chapter 18, as God's preparing to obliterate Sodom and Gomorrah, we read these words, Genesis 18 verse 17, "...the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed." For I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Here again, we see the heart of God revealed. We see God desiring to share his plan with his lowly servant Abraham. We see God acting in a way that seems so far beneath him. But yet again, we see it's not just limited. To so you know it's not limited to Abraham. It's extended even in the New Testament, isn't it? For the Son of God, Jesus uses this similar language to depict, to describe his relationship with the disciples. I want you to see this just so you can appreciate just how powerful this is. So turn, if you will, over to the Gospel of John. Friend John... Chapter 15, you see the same level of care and concern that God shows for his servants, for his followers, in this case, the disciples. And as you turn there, let's take a moment to appreciate again the type of servants we're dealing with in each of these cases. For none of these people are sinless. This certainly is not the case when you get to the disciples. For in John chapter 15, the resurrection hasn't even happened yet. So these disciples, as great as they are in moments, are still pretty foolish at other times. They don't get it. They regularly miss the entire point of what Jesus is saying. Point being, these disciples have no right to hear what the king of all creation is doing in his will. For they're just going to misunderstand it anyways, right? And yet, despite that fact, we see this in John chapter 15. Verse 13. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give you. This I command you, that you love one another. There in those early verses, again, we see this imagery in which we see God not speaking to us as he would his slaves, but he speaks to us as friends. He brings us into that, that inner circle and he explains to us what it is he's up to, what it is he's doing, what it is he desires to see happen. And so doing, we see God gifting us with the same privileged communication that he gifted Noah. It's an amazing act of grace, of love. And it's something I fear oftentimes we, we abuse, we overlook. We can look at the Bible as if it's this ancient, outdated book. But it's the Word of God. It is how God has chosen primarily to reveal himself to us, to tell us exactly what's happened, tell us what is going to happen to tell us exactly what he expects of us, what he commands of us, and to assure us that he will make sure that his will cannot be trumped, his will cannot be overthrown. God did not have to communicate any of this. He could have left us in the dark and that is what we would deserve and yet God chooses to bring us into the light, to give us understanding, to time and time again remind us what his plan is, to remind us time and time again how glorious that plan is and how, wonderful our creator is and how much worship he deserves. And so even as God brings Noah in and begins to communicate, we see that, that sheer gift that God is granting. As he speaks to him then, as we get back to Genesis 6, we see God bringing Noah into the fold and giving him, in essence, two messages, two promises, broadly speaking. The first promise is the promise of judgment? Again, we'll read all of this here, just so we can appreciate how strong of a message this is. Beginning in verse thirteen, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before Me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, shall cover it inside and out with pitch." This is how you shall make it, the length of the ark 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to the cubit with the top. Set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with the lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth, shall perish. We'll stop there. In the midst of all those details of the ark, details that we'll, we'll mention a little bit here in a moment, we see this first promise. The first promise that would make it easy to overlook all those details and dimensions of the ark, right? For if I'm Noah and I'm hearing things about the cubits and the rooms, I'm, I'm probably thinking, what about that whole destruction thing, God? You're doing What? For what God says here is no minor detail. He says he will bring massive floodwaters and destroy everything. He will blot out life on the earth. And again, he'll do so with this massive flood. The power and and terrifying abilities of water is something that, that should not be lost on even us as a modern audience. It's still something that can shake and strike terror in the hearts of all modern societies. We appreciate in the ancient world how it could be seen as chaotic, as, as a source of turmoil. But even today, we live in a world that understands the power of water. In fact, that regardless of how advanced we become, water can destroy it all. Even here in Missouri, we understand the dangers of flash floods. We understand that it just takes a mere... Inch, a level of inches of water to carry a number of cars away. We understand the damaging effects that floods can have in our homes and our cities, how quickly that can settle in. As I consider this terrifying reality of water, I think of imagery of tsunamis that we occasionally see in the news. You think back to the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean that wiped out 150,000 people. Shocking. You've seen those tsunamis, pictures of, of waves moving upwards of 500 miles an hour. And as it grows in speed, it grows in height, and you can see images of waves reaching up to 100 feet in the air. You can imagine being hit with a 100-foot wall of water moving hundreds of miles an hour. It doesn't matter how strong of a home you have, it doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are, you will be destroyed as will everything else in its path. We understand just how damaging that water can be, and in the ancient world again, it was often seen as this picture of violence, as this picture of turmoil, as this picture of, of chaos, as it could never be tamed by man. But for the Hebrew people, this water also carried with it a great deal of symbolic significance. For while it could not be tamed by man or by any civilization, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see that that God somehow tames it. The God sits above this. And so this is why in passages like Psalm 74, 13 through 14, or Job 26, 12, you see the authors point to this power of God, his ability to sit enthroned above the flood, his ability to still the seas, his ability to tame those beasts that live within. We see authors time and time again using that imagery to, to show how incomparable God is how powerful God is, how God himself cannot be tamed, for only he can tame all that is in creation. To be told that he would destroy the world with water then carried with it incredible symbolism and incredible violence. And it also carried with it this imagery of a sort of anti-creation occurring. For if you turn back to Genesis 1, you see what these waters were or how these waters were used initially. In Genesis 1, verse 6, the first mention of waters we read. God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters let us separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters, which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, there was evening, there was morning a second day, then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. But dry land appear and it was so. God called the dry land earth and gathering the waters he called sea. And God saw that it was good. Back in Genesis 1, we discuss how, how that separation of water and land was, was necessary as God prepared creation for, for humanity. As God prepared creation for us so that we could then take care of it. That water and the land had to be separated. But as God speaks to Noah here, we see he's reversing that course. There's no longer that expanse to divide the waters. Water will now cover everything up again. And as it does so, as we see creation in reverse, we see the result will be death, chaos. It will be a new start, in which God will once again be able to prepare earth, in which God will once again raise up his people. But that people, of course, will be incredibly limited. By itself, this message of the flood and the imagery that will follow next week in Genesis 7 is truly terrifying, isn't it? And it's at this point that I think a lot of people might step back and think, this is the story we tell kids in children's church? It's pretty violent, pretty horrifying, really. I mean, one of the most violent images you can find in all of scriptures is this idea of, of God sending rain, of blotting out everything on earth that has breath. And if left to your own devices, that feeling of terror is really the only appropriate response to the flood. For any outsider hearing this message, this story of judgment is horrifying. And yet, as God speaks to Noah, horror and terror are not spoken of, at least in terms of Noah's future, are they? For all, God describes how he's going to destroy humanity... God also very quickly reminds Noah of the second message. That second message not being one of judgment, but of preservation. For having said what he is going to do, that is I will destroy the earth, immediately in verse 14, God tells Noah how he can survive. God says, this is what I'm going to do to everyone else, but Noah, here's what you have to do. Noah, here's, here's how you will be preserved. Noah, here's how you will survive. Noah, here's how I will extend my righteous line through you. As God speaks to Noah, he really speaks of of two means of preservation. The first mean and the most familiar mean of preservation in the story is, of course, the ark. That ark is described primarily there in verses 14 through 16. A surprising amount of detail is given as it depicts this, this physical reality of a boat we don't have time to unpack all of these things, but we see here, broadly speaking, a, an ark that would have been about a one and a half football fields long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. We see this boat has various levels, various compartments, of course, we'll see later to, to hold all of the animals or at least an animal of each kind. And while we don't necessarily need to, to get into a great number of details here, I, I think it is beneficial to understand that the, what describes, what God is describing here is not it's not a symbol. That is saying in other ancient myths about the flood, you have other boats, other arcs that are built, but those arcs are always arcs of fantasy. And they're arcs that are certain shapes that could never float. They're, they're ships that could never actually be used for preservation. You see that particularly in the, the Babylonian, uh, uh, Babylonian account. But the account of the flood in Genesis 6 is different. For, for God is actually describing a real ship. He's describing something that could be compared to a modern-day barge. might not look pretty, but it's effective. And if you have time, if you're of any interest, you can search this online as much as you want, and you can see how so many people have tested this. They've, They've rebuilt boats along these same measurements and shown that this is, in fact, a seaworthy vessel. The God truly is giving his servant Noah the detailed building counts by which his life will be preserved. That's an amazing thing to consider. But as the original audience read this, I think it's safe to say they also would see more than just a boat, although it was a boat. In the same way that they would attach symbolic significance to the water, they no doubt would attach symbolic significance to this means of preservation to the fact that God will use water to judge the world, but he will also use it to preserve his people. Some commentators compare this language of the ark to the way that that the basket that Moses himself is delivered in. It's imagery I was not familiar with, but if you look to the depiction of the ark, specifically the language of it being kept together with pitch, you'll see in the book of Exodus, That similar word pitch being used in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. This is the same material, the same glue that holds the basket together that was used to preserve the life of Moses. Not only that, of course, but as you consider this imagery of God using water to judge the earth but to preserve his people, it does not take a great deal of imagination to consider what other story will naturally come to the minds of God's people, does it? For where else do we see God using the power of water to bring death upon the masses but bring life to his people. It's a story of the Exodus. For in the story of the Exodus, you see, of course, God parting the waters of the sea, allowing his people to safely walk across, and upon delivering them safely across the other side, he brings those waters back down, and it is death, it is chaos. The armies of Pharaoh are killed by the hand of Yahweh. For the people of God, then, as they read the story of Genesis, your primary takeaway is not necessarily, look how terrifying God is. It's a picture of, look how gracious God is to preserve his people. Look at the reality of a sin's effects, the reality of God's wrath, but look also to the reality of how God will preserve his people. God will keep us intact, God will always show us the way through. God does this primarily through the means of the ark here in Genesis 6. But perhaps even more important than that is the other means of preservation that God promises here. And for that, look back to Genesis 6, verse 18. For God speaks of this second way that he will ultimately preserve, or rather, this other manner by which Noah can always feel confident. For verse 18 we read, but but I will establish my covenant with you you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind of the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And he goes on and depicts how God will use this to preserve his people. God's message to know is not just preservation through the ark. God's message to know is preservation through the covenant. Again, language that would have been rich with significance to the Old Testament people. For they were people of the covenant. And and we do not use this type of language frequently in our own day and age today, but we too are held together by these covenantal promises of God. You see the use of covenants throughout the Old Testament. This particular type of covenant I think is best seen in David's covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in these covenants we see God promising to do certain things for his people, not because of how great they are, not because of what they bring to the table, but because how great God is. And so if you look to passages like Second Samuel 7, you read of these covenantal promises God makes to his servant David. As he says, I will do this, I will extend your line, I will bless the earth through your line. I will do this, I will do that, and David's response is appropriate. It's, it's awe, it's wonder, it's gratitude. We see God making the same promises, I think, to Noah here. For God, again, is promising him he will preserve him. And he'll do this, not simply because Noah is a servant, but because, Noah himself, because God himself is faithful. Because God is God who fulfills all of his promises. And so, in the face of this terrifying message of floodwaters, in the face of this terrifying promise of judgment, there's this soothing message of preservation. Preservation that is guaranteed not simply because of a boat that will be built, preservation that's guaranteed because of a covenant that's made by a faithful, good, reliable creator. It's a beautiful picture. And again, in this picture, we do not just see some ancient story of some ancient servant. We again see a story that's very much related to us. For in this story, we're reminded of the fact that that we are not all entirely unlike Noah. We too live in a dark world. We too live in a world that is full of unrighteousness. We too face a day of judgment. For it's a message that's given time and time in the New Testament. Yet despite that judgment, we too have, been bene- have benefited from the fact that God has also given us this message of, of clarity, Revelation message doesn't simply say judgment is coming, but a message that says, here here it is how you will be preserved. Here's how you can survive. As we consider that similarity then, as we see the beauty of God seeing his servant and God speaking to his servant, we're then brought, I think, to the very practical, very beautiful picture of how a servant should respond to all these things. For having given these messages of judgment and of preservation, we see this simple yet incredible response of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 verse 22. Look there with me as we see how God's servant responds. Having given him this message, we read, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. So simple, isn't it? so few words used, yet it it speaks of an example of faith that really inspires all. And I think there's a reason why Noah is remembered throughout Scripture as, as an example of faith. For here we see faith in action, both privately, that is internally, but also publicly, and what this must have meant for Noah and his public witness. Privately, we see then Noah hears this message from God. A message that, let's be clear, was wild. It would have been entirely unlike anything Noah could have ever possibly understood or grasped. For all, they understood, of course, the concept of water, the idea of of a worldwide flood. that's, That's beyond reasonable. That's beyond anything that anyone could possibly argue, that anyone could possibly describe. Not only that, But the means of preservation being a giant boat? It's weird. That's a bizarre message. For again, this would have been unlike anything Noah had ever seen. And yet, despite how unreal this moment must have been, how does Noah respond? He builds the boat. Why does he build the boat? Because he knows who he's serving. Because he has faith, that faith which... As I believe Pastor Jeremy referenced earlier, is defined in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Our world oftentimes makes this statement overly simplistic, and you hear people say things like, Faith is blind. That's not true. Faith isn't blind. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, but what's it based upon? It's based upon what's been proven. The men and women of old that are uh, categorized here in Hebrews 11 did not do things because they thought, well, maybe this will work out. They did things because they knew the God they served and they knew he was good because of everything he'd done before. Therefore, they knew, even though they couldn't see the fulfillment of the promise, that it would come eventually. Eventually. This is exactly what Noah does internally. He may not understand what a flood is. He may not understand what this boat's going to look like, but he's going to act because he knows God. And so he responds in faith. He obeys. And he fulfills his calling. To build a boat, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, to bring animals onto the ark, and through this faith, through this Noah, we see God preserving humanity. It's a beautiful picture of this internal reality, this internal confidence. But it's also a beautiful picture of what this meant for Noah publicly. For as we all understand, building a boat of this size would not happen overnight. This is something that took years upon years upon years. Some people, using the language earlier in Genesis 6, believe it would have been 120 years. Even if you don't buy that longevity, you understand this would have been a long process, a process that would have, would have caused Noah to daily be in conflict, be in communication with others walking by him. Can you imagine how insane Noah must have appeared to, his counter, uh, to, to the other people in his culture? How ridiculous this activity must have looked. To watch Noah day in and day out, year in and year out, build up this boat, and you can only imagine the things that people around Noah must have been saying about him. Yet Noah continued to do this. Other passages in 2 Peter and elsewhere just depict Noah as being this, this preacher of righteousness in Hebrews chapter 11, depicting this process in verse 7. We read, By faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is in which is according to the faith. Day in and day out, Noah built that, which was intended to be a constant picture of the coming judgment. Noah did that which no doubt would have brought mockery and ridicule from the world around him. But Noah did this because this is what servants of God do. They get their message. They get their marching orders. And even if they cannot fully understand it, even if they cannot fully comprehend it, they march ahead. They carry it out. And in so doing, they will either bring a message of life to a dying world or they will bring a message of condemnation to a world that rejects it. Noah was that man. He was that servant. And you will forever be remembered as that faithful servant as a result of this activity. As we consider that example, as we consider this story, and we'll close here, We must take very seriously it again that this message of Noah, this message of of the flood, is not some ancient story. For it's the same story repeated day in and day out through the rest of the New Testament. It's the same message of warning that Jesus brings. the same message of warning the apostles continue to proclaim. For all we understand that God will never again send a worldwide flood to destroy. God will judge all the earth. And in that day... If you insist upon standing upon your own rights, upon your own abilities, upon your own works, you will burn. You'll be judged. And so as you consider that, hear the words of Peter who used the same language of Genesis 6 and applies it to his own day and ours as well. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse starting in verse 5. For when they maintain this, that is when they reject the coming day of judgment, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, is some counting slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Unbeliever, the day of judgment is upon us. It will be here in the blink of an eye. And so many in our world Count the slowness of this judgment to be evidence of the fact that it's never coming. But as Peter says, no, do not, do not deny the fact that it is coming. This is simply an example, a picture of God's patience. But do not abuse that patience of God, unbeliever. Repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus Christ is the only means of preservation in the coming day of judgment. And if you do that, you will be saved. If you do not, you will be judged. I beg you do that today, I beg you do that now, and if you have any questions, please talk to me afterwards. For my fellow believers, let us not take lightly the same message of judgment. Let us not take lightly the fact that that day of judgment is coming, that we've been gifted this gift of communication, we understand what's going to happen, we've been given the preservation through Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so let us daily make sure that we are striving to shine as lights in this dark world. Let us daily ensure that we are putting all of our hope not into our own works, not into our own deeds, but into the work of Jesus Christ. As we seek to hide ourselves in his person, in himself, let us be quick to be grateful to God for the work of grace he's given to us. And let us be preachers of righteousness just as Noah was. Let us be vocal of that coming day and let us beg others to come on board with us. For the day of judgment is coming and preservation is here in Christ. Let us make sure that we find ourselves therein. Let me close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, God, we love you. We thank you for today. God, as we read the story of the flood, it is easy to get lost in the details. It's easy to get lost in in the imagery. But I pray that we do not miss the simplistic point of it all. I pray we do not miss the picture of your heart that's given. I pray that we do not miss the means of preservation you gave Noah and how it's an example of your grace. And I pray that we do not miss how that applies to us today. God, judgment is coming, we know, for you've told us. But just as you made the means of preservation clear to Noah, you've made the means of preservation clear to us as well. That preservation is not found in a boat, but it's found in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, might we take refuge in him today. For those who are here who do not yet know you, God, bring them to saving faith in your son today. For the rest of us, God, might we take shelter in him. Might we not take lightly the patience that you've shown us, God. Don't we strive to learn from the example of Noah. We strive daily to rejoice, knowing that your will will be done, knowing that we will be brought through the waters eventually, and knowing that on the other side lays that celestial city, our eternal home with you. We love you, God, and we praise you. Be with us. We close now in Jesus' name. Amen.